Hi there, I'm Andy Bush. Welcome along to another episode of Scarred for Life, a weekly journey into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. I'm aided and abetted as ever by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the fantastic Scarred for Life books upon which this podcast is based. Every week, you know how it works, we will be speaking to a special guest who will be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of something that's literally terrified them since they were kids. But before we say hello to this week's guest, uh, let's hear from you, our amazing Scarred for Life listeners. And it's great to hear that our guests' choices each week are making you guys go out and want to track down certain books or movies and films, etc. So, for example, we want to say hi to Nikki, who's messaged us to say uh, that I'm coming away from this podcast with an ever-growing list of things I need to watch, stroke, read, and I love it. It's bringing back some fantastic memories and scars of my own. Thank you so much. And she's uh, sent a little photo of some of her shopping list of stuff that she's going to be getting based on the things that people have recommended, which is great. Uh, hi to Jeff May, who says, just want to say I've started listening to the Scarred for Life podcast, and I'm loving it. It's very interesting. And now I really want to get my hands on the books that it's based on. Well, you know what to do. Make sure you get yourself your Scarred for Life books. Two of them available right now and a third one on the way. He says, a lot of the stuff uh, covered reminds me of my childhood in the 70s and 80s. So thank you for a brilliant podcast and looking forward to more episodes thank you so much and let's get on a listener's scar we love hearing about what stuff has scared you as a kid hi to nicola chapman who's dropped us an email uh, contact at scarredforlifebooks.com uh, she says she remembers going to see a double bill of watership down and the dark crystal shown at the local leisure center during ta- half term uh, she says i was probably age five or six i had to be taken out of both films in tears and i still can't watch either as a 40 plus year old without having an overwhelming sense of horror i had nightmares for weeks about dead rabbits and skexies what's that skexis yeah what is skexis yeah skexis that's the the creatures from the dark crystal yeah. these huge vulture type things yeah yeah they were horrible well i mean what a terrifying double bill that is watership down in the dark crystal blimey i mean if you start you start off with presumably start off with watership down which is just you're going on a downer immediately this is the thing my memory of watership down was my uncle peter would sometimes visit he was kind of like the jack the lad of the family i remember him staying at the house for a little while and he offered to take me off my mum and dad's hands for the evening and take me to see the cartoon about the, the cute bunnies. There was a a one-screen classic cinema over the road from my mum and dad's house. So off we go to see Watership Down and he brings me back in floods of tears. And my mum and dad are like, what the fuck did you take him to see? But it, it, was, it wasn't just the blood, it, was, it wasn't just the, the fighting, it was the, it was such a maudlin, sad, I still can't hear bright eyes without kind of yeah. getting a bit of a knot in my stomach. Well, I think it purports to be a, a, a cute kind of bunny-based, you know, knockabout bit of fun, but it's actually it's haunted a, a lot of people. If you are also affected by um, Watership Down, you can get in touch. Uh, there's a support group right here for you at Scarred for Life, at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter. Well, look, let's meet this week's special guest. This week's guest is an award-winning comedian, broadcaster, actor, and writer. His early career in stand-up comedy turned uh, into a lifelong passion for popularising science. His Radio 4 show, The Infinite Monkey Cage, which he presents alongside the brilliant Professor Brian Cox, uh, has made science accessible to everyone, has won Sony Gold Award as well, equally at home, making people laugh and making people think. He has written and presented documentaries on topics ranging from Dr. Seuss to Nobel Prize-winning quantum electrodynamic theorist Richard Feynman. A true polymath for the 21st century, we are delighted to welcome to Scarred for Life Robin Ince. Robin, welcome. 
Yeah, it's very exciting. I don't know where we're going to go in terms of uh, which nightmares we're going to dredge up. Because I was a child who had many nightmares as well. Were you? Did you have a lot of nightmares? You you were you were regularly plagued by them. Yeah, I used to have a lot of nightmares, and uh, I've, I'm always told that once where I, I would sleep very deep, you have these terrible, terrible nightmares. And uh, and my dad once was trying to wake me up, apparently quite gently, he'd wake up, and apparently I told him to fuck off. And uh, <laughs> and then suddenly my sister said that, that. Then he went wake up like that. So that is uh, that's that's the first, as far as I know, acknowledged in the history of my my family for my first swear. Oh, really? First ever swear. Stuck in, stuck in a dark, dark dream. Uh, was there anything in particular that you remember used to be particularly bad? Obviously, we'll get into stuff that scarred you for life later on in the chat. But, I mean, is there anything that you remember used to kind of keep you up awake at night? You know, what? one of the things was imagining infinity, imagining the size of the universe. I would have that moment where I would – I probably wasn't even imagining infinity. Two things plagued me. I used to think – was there a beginning to time? Not from a physics point of view, not like some kind of, you know, young, you know, Brian Cox. I would just think of going back in time further and further and if there was no beginning. And, and then and that meant there were no parameters. There were no walls. Yeah. There was no beginning and there was no end. And the vastness I would find, and I would sometimes see myself as this kind of figure with then the camera just zooming out and out and out and you just become smaller and smaller. And sometimes I'd be, I'd be in a kind of factory, not dissimilar to the, some of the kind of things you see in metropolis but entirely empty yeah. and i would just be right in the middle it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it used to just make me it, it was that sense of falling you know that bit that just that oh, sense yeah. of being entirely lost that's cosmic horror that's the end of a lovecraft story yeah, yeah. geez is that a thing there? There must be something to do is that like a phobia of infinity i wonder what it is about infinity that i don't think it's a, a, a I think it's cosmological vertigo, which is a, a, a term that came up in the 19th century. In the late 19th century, there was this suddenly you had these ideas in between. You know, you've got the the idea that we're all connected to all of the other living things on the planet Earth. You know, it's, it's that idea of what Darwin. So you, we're no longer the centre of the universe because we found out because of Copernicus and Galileo, etc. That, that's changed everything. And then it turns out we're not a special creature that's separate from all the other animals. And then you're beginning to get kind of Freud and the idea of the unconscious and the fact that, you know, this great big iceberg, most of, of, of our brain is the old Ken Campbell line. You is just one of the things your brain does. And, uh, you know, yes, all of those things started to lead to what was seen as cosmological vertigo. And that apparently is one of the reasons that Paul Gauguin, uh, the artist, um, fled. Uh, and pro possibly also because he was a paedophile. <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it yeah not a big fan of his work i mean a lot i used to like his work but i've read enough about him to go no thank you go enough of you well i mean obviously we, we just said at the beginning there about your you know your work with professor brian cox and your, your involvement with science is scientific knowledge i'm slightly worried sorry can i just say that the the, the brian cox thing came in so soon after i talked about go and 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 i'm worried that somehow there's going to be implications there in that link <laughs> some sort of science you tree uh, i don't think so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> science you tree but like is scientific knowledge though is it comforting because you can have a cold kind of like calm dispassionate look at the way things are and the way the universe works or like you say with the infinity or like for example i got kind of scared about um you know maybe we are alone in yeah. in the universe and that's kind of terrifying so is science is science comforting or scary robin what do you think 
Well, I mean, the best way to answer that is to say that you should really buy my book, The Importance of Being Interested, which deals with exactly that currently available Atlantic Publishing. But another way of answering that as well is I think from my personal perspective, I think I'm lucky in lots of different ways. One, I don't think I really need any like a dogmatic belief. I, for some reason, I'm, I'm the older I get, the more and more comfortable I am with doubt and uncertainty. Like recently, I've been talking a lot. Uh, some of the when I've been doing a book tour about the thing that Brian Cox, one of the things he doesn't like me saying, which is ghosts are real. And of course, to that he would always go, "No, they're not. They break the second law of thermodynamics." <laughs> but I'm very comfortable <laughs> with the idea that ghosts are individually real for us but no i so i love the fact that the older i get the more i love the divide between what you might call the scientific world certain ideas of which it is important to look at and understand and not say you're allowed to have your own opinion on whatever nonsense based on no evidence you know it's the old harlan ellis thing isn't it you know you're not allowed to have your your own opinion you're allowed to have your own informed opinion no one's got the right to be ignorant you know that um but you know, apart from remembering that gravity does work or whatever gravity is, and you've got to be careful in high things and dropping stuff. And, you know, and when we look at vaccination and things, all of those things. Are, but that general belief in the fact that we ourselves are a subjective creature, that what our experience of the world is. So everyone may well have that moment where they just they imagine a ghost or they remember, you know, the moment it's not that long ago since my dad died. He died about six months ago. And when I go back to his house, some days I hear his voice now you know i can hear him kind of calling for me as he would normally if i got back late and he needed something because he was up in bed by then and and that's not i don't think it would be in any way testable as a scientific hypothesis because i know where it lives i know where that ghost lives it lives in my brain it lives in my mind and i think sometimes with science i mean i think generally if you mix science with some of your own personal myths that you can have for yourself not to create a flock, not to create, you know, uh, uh, just for you. So then I think you can live quite at times a comfortable life. That balance between going, my mind is creating all manner of wonders, but I've also got to remember to pave in this way when dealing with the physical world. That was the thing, because I'm glad you brought up ghosts and science, because I've always been into paranormal stuff. You, Before we started recording, you mentioned the Osborne Book of UFOs mm. and those that trilogy of books just fired me as a kid. I couldn't actually own a copy of the ghost book because it was the scariest book I'd ever seen in my life <laughs> up to that point. But I've always been really interested in the paranormal, but I don't believe in the supernatural. I believe in science. And it's a long story, but I used to work in retail for 23 years. And the shop that we worked in, I worked with like two of the most sceptical people I've ever met in my life, but even they described it to their friends as a haunted shop because mm. we couldn't figure out another way to describe it. The things that we saw, the things that we heard, the things that we felt. I don't believe in the supernatural. I, the older I get, I think if, if, and it's a big if, if ghosts and shit exist, it's a natural scientific phenomenon that we haven't figured out yet. It's almost like when you move into a new house, you get rising damp, you get mould, and you might get a ghost. But it's it, there's nothing there, there's no sentience. It's just a recording in the air or something. But I'm always fascinated by that relationship between superstition and the supernatural and hard science and how that kind of all collides and maybe explains everything. See, I think it's not a recording in the air. I think it's a recording in your brain. I think it's a recording in your mind. And, and, and that's, what, that's why... 
you know, it's very it's frequently pointless to if someone says I've, I went to I, I'm going to tell you that ghosts really exist because I saw this. There's no real point in arguing with that person because what mm. they saw at that moment, their experience of it um, was real for them. And again, that's what that's why I'm a huge fan of William Blake, because William Blake was able to have all these different levels of reality. You know, which I find really kind of, you know, that, that bit of accepting some of it. It's, it's like, you know, Alan Moore with his Roman sock puppet god, you know, the snake god Glycon. You know, it's very yeah. important that Glycon is only worshipped by Alan. If Alan starts to find that there's 20 or 30 people online who are starting to, and Glycon is becoming a church, then Alan will have to worship some other form of sock or knitwear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dave, what yeah, you ask? So I was just going to bring in. Uh, I've told this story before, but my cousin is not a lady given to fantasy or you know, flight of imagination, and she swears blind. She lived in one of the oldest houses in the town I live in, and she swears blind. She came down the stairs one day, and there's a little old lady sitting in a rocking chair in her front room, and she doesn't even own a rocking chair. Never mind a little old lady, and she was absolutely convinced of that. At the same time, she also told a story about how she used to get a tingle. Every time she walked into the kitchen, she'd have a strange tingle. And it turned out that somehow the mains had shorted out and she would have got an electric shock from any one of her surfaces. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there could be scientific explanations for all these things. But I don't know. Well, it's like that one, which is the, um, was it an air conditioning unit in a laboratory where it was creating a, a, a frequency, a very, very low level frequency, which when they actually found out what it was, so, so it couldn't be heard consciously, but this low level frequency was causing... Uh, a reaction in the brain, which made which made people think they kept seeing shapes. So all of these things. I mean, I think the arrogance comes from our belief that we, you know, some people want us to think there's only one real world. You know, you're not living yeah. in the real world, mate. Well, there isn't one real world for us individually. There are certain things that we can share, and there are hopefully there's enough. You know, reality is where we have a kind of consensual agreement of of roughly what we're seeing and roughly what what we're experiencing. But then there's that other world, which is, and that's why I always think with Brian, right? Like when I say to him, the, the interesting question is not do ghosts exist or not from a scientific thing. The interesting thing is why do we believe in ghosts? Why do people experience what they see as ghosts or supernatural events? Those areas are, uh, to me, are utterly fascinating. It's like, yeah, I, I think one of the problems with kind of our culture in particular is I, I think we're a very, like a rather dull linear culture quite often, that everything only has a single meaning. And it's like when you look at the myths, you know, a lot of different kind of cultures that have these, magn you know, you, you look at the indigenous people of Australia, and what happened is, you know, Europeans get there and go, oh, these idiots all believe there's a big emu in the sky and everything. And you go, no, it's much more complex than that. It's yeah. not that there's a big giant emu like some Toho studio, you know, Mothra versus the emo, emu versus <laughs> Godzilla. It's, it's about creating all of these stories that kind of do become a little bit alive, but they're stories to make sure that you then do the right thing as the seasons change, as things, change, you know, so so there is a kind of almost a tangible manifestation of it. But we always turn these, oh, rubbish, they believe, ridiculous thing. And you go, no, no, no that's because you're believing in the, you know, believing that they believe in the rubbish, very, very literal version. So so what do you think about, I mean, you hear these, these uh, theories put out there about, you know, life being a simulation or AI and all, you know, you know, what do you think about that kind of stuff, Robin? It's almost something like recently, I can't remember who it was now, but they're saying that life is a simulation of something, someone else having an entertainment type thing. What do you think? 
do you know what? I think none of it changes the way that I'm going to exist or spend my life. There's nothing that you could do about it. If you know, if we go back to Harlan Ellison, you know, I, I have no mouth and I must scream, which is, I think, one of the greatest titles of any of his short stories where people basically end up living within the mind of a computer. And it's uh, quite. But I think they're fun. The certain ideas, which I think are what I would call a lot of fun to play within a Philip K. Dick story. Right. Uh, but not a necessary philosophy for the way you live your life. It's like if free will is an illusion, it doesn't make any difference because we will never be able to rise above it or, or sink below it. We will always behave as if we have free will. So that big question, if it is free will an illusion, it doesn't lead to any good places. That right, it's, okay. it's something to play with. But it's nothing that I think should philosophically change the way you treat other people or the way you behave to yourself. And, and you did a fantastic uh, impression there of Professor Brian Cox. He's a very calm man. Do you think he's a scareable uh, chap, or do you think nothing scares Professor Brian Cox? Uh, no, I think when I'm trying to think when I have seen him. What was he? Worried? Oh, he doesn't like spiders, which was interesting. We did a uh, we did a, a, a show about spiders in Sydney, and we had this a fantastic spider expert. I've, I've forgotten her name. I do, I do apologise to her, but, but it was, and she brought a what was it? A St Andrew's cross spider, uh, a huntsman spider, which of course a very big spider, pretty harmless, but it's it's, it's one of the biggest, you know, kind yeah. of, and it's got the and um oh, well, and an orb weaving spider. And when they came out, and even though they were in little perspex kind of, you know, old, Brian was like, oh, I didn't know they were actually going to come onto the, the show. And then when the St. Andrew's cross spider came out that was just in a frame, and they introduced a male, and the whole audience sat there going, will we see spider cannibalism? Will we see? They were very excited by that. And, and yeah, he didn't like that. And that is not a rational thing. So that's an interesting thing to see, that that's rooted far enough down in his kind of fears that he would worry about that. And obviously bad wine is something that would deeply affect him. I mean, I think it was interesting. We, he is quite a wine connoisseur. And we did an episode all about the psychology and the science of wine. And one of the things that we found is, and you probably know about this already, but if you don't know the colour of the wine you're drinking, if it's concealed from you in a black cup or whatever it might be, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between red and white wine. And they've done this with lots of spirits as well. That the difference, wow. but you would not believe that. You know, I'm I'm here now. I'm drinking some red wine. This, mm, it's a red wine. It tastes red. It tastes like berries and all that stuff. It's got that kind of different viscous. Got, but when we all sat down, uh, there, I think there were the four of us. So Tim Minchin was doing it as well. And um, you know, the, in fact, the three other people on the panel were wine connoisseurs, whereas I'm not, which saves me a lot of money. And uh, they all of them got it wrong. And then they they wow. going no 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 but no no but the reason is and they they all you know, had to argue that they'd somehow been misled and no one could accept again going back to that subjectivity thing the far more exciting thing that when we're putting together the picture of the world when I hold up this red wine and I start drinking this red wine my brain is already doing loads of stuff to say you are now going to have a red wine experience but I think that did appall him. <laughs> Dave, what do you want to Yeah, so <laughs> when you see those wine experts, they say, I'm getting hints of tarmac and uh, berries and, and apples, and it's on the south slope. Is that possible to have that much, do you think? Yeah, because I think, I think so much of it is coming from you projecting onto it. And, and the moment you think you're drinking a cheap wine that's a, that's a bit rubbish, hmm. 
very hard then to elevate it to mm, blackberries and <laughs> vanilla and all of those things. <laughs> but when you've got an expensive wine, because I've done it myself, when when we've been on tour and the tour manager, Manager Giles as well, he started to get into wine and they just sit there and go, oh, yeah, mm, mm, oh, I'm getting burnt. There's these two that I always say, if you want to pretend to be a wine connoisseur, when you're drinking white wine, turn to your fancy friends and go, is anyone else getting buttery mash? Oh, I'm getting buttery mash. And, and a little bit of burnt toffee, right? So all of those ones. But you can then sew in. So I remember once sitting, I think we were in a, in, in a hotel in York and I went, oh, it's a bit of a kind of farmyard quality to it as well, isn't there? And they all went, oh, God, yeah, no, I'm getting that. And these are great, very simple ways of us looking at the world and going, our, our mind is, it's not everything's just coming in. Our mind is connecting with what's outside as well. Do you know what's fascinating, though, Robin? Talk, hearing you talk about stuff like the universe and everything is fascinating. And, you know, you talk about the amount of information and disinformation that's out there. Where, where is where is the, the forum for debate and conversation now is it is it twitter and places like no, that or, or... twitter's a pointless place i mean twitter's fine as long as you don't press on what's trending uh unless it's you that's trending as uh i found out when uh, i wrote a short and i thought very gentle piece about ricky gervais's uh trans jokes uh but uh it turns out <laughs> that uh, there's a certain don't know how i hadn't worked that out uh no matter what but, but that really <laughs> i i think from my personal experience, any social media which allows you to have paragraphs and where the previous answer doesn't vanish is enormously helpful. Right. And secondly, I think one of the things is the best places to do this are on proper forums or with people you are really seeing. And really, it's because, you know, I, I, I think so many people want the world to be definite. And they want to be sure. You know, I look back now and I think about some of the stuff I did with the kind of atheist movement in, uh, what was it, 2007 to 2008. And, and I think I've, I've kind of moved on now because, one, I don't care whether someone believes in God or not, or gods, or whatever it might be. I only care about the actions people make because it doesn't matter. If someone, if someone believes in God and they're kind and they're lovely, who cares? And then there's I used to sometimes say about some of the atheists, as as certain people noticed, some people who were going to be their heroes, it turned out they had, should we say, some quite old fashioned ideas on uh, various parts of society. And I said, it's such an odd thing that, you know, sometimes for people say they're, you know, misogyny, say they're kind of, you know, transphobia or homophobia might all come from a biblical text they've got. But to me, one of the great things of not having one single truth is you don't have to become a bigot because a book told you to. So I found it odd when I suddenly went, oh, and I used to call those people free choice assholes because they kind of, they didn't have to be assholes. They, they'd rather than go, it's in the book of, you know, Leviticus. They, they would just go, no, I've freely chosen to really be a dick towards people. Well, we talked about I mean, this podcast is called Scarred for Life. It's about scary stuff. Comedy can be a scary place. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Ricky Gervais there, etc. It's It's a different... Do you feel like comedy is is a is a, a lot more treacherous environment than it was five ten years ago? Do you think? No, I don't. I think I think one there's an enormous number of tremendously creative, kind, and interesting people. Uh, you know, you watch Josie Long, you watch James A. Caster, you watch you know these are these are great minds doing wonderful things. You watch someone like Stuart Lee, obviously, and um, it's a it's much bigger than it was when I started because it's now in the old days. If you went to your careers advisor at school and said I'd like to be a comedian, they'd say no, but what do you really want to do? 
Whereas yeah. now they might go, yeah, that's, that's a very good career path now, and this is where you can go with it. Um, but I don't think it's... I, I mean, the thing that I find disappointing, because I think, again, like Josie and, 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 and Stu and some of the others as well, which is we really do believe in it as this magnificent thing that can be a thing of, of, of beauty and creativity. And then you see a lot of people who kind of become pinups because what they do is they just punch down all the time and say nasty things about people who already have normally a pretty terrible time in life and are more likely to get. Um, and then they're also called these kind of free speech warriors. And yet their free speech is is free speech that's widely available in many columns by Richard Littlejohn and Peter Hitchens and all the rest. And yeah. and so I, I still, I find, I don't know what I am anymore. I mean, I do shows almost every single night. I'm, I'm always doing some form of tour. I'm, you know, I, I do as many shows that as freed as well in bookshops or libraries or whatever it might be because that means everyone comes along and then yeah. they come away and they don't know what they were going to see and and I always try very hard to create something that's really positive and something which is uh you know I I, I celebrate the freakery of us and I think that's some you know scarred for life and a lot of the things that you kind of highlight in that world a lot of the things that united us, a lot of things, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, are so many of us who that, you know, that that haunted generation idea, um, you know, it, it was one of the things that that, that, we, that we loved it because the rest of the world seemed so frightening. And if you weren't fitting in as well and school was a little bit difficult and all that kind of thing, you liked to be in a world that was scary but on a screen or in a book and you had some kind of, there was a greater control yeah. over the fear. Yeah, and spot on. Nearly everyone that I know who was into that world is and still is very often now is is uh you know like yeah someone like bob fisher and i think you know obviously i know you know bob bob well and i, I think i yeah. met bob many years ago when his whiffle lever to fall came out as a book and you know bob's such a kind and sweet person and, and i think very often it's a bit like heavy metal you know that you'd imagine that a metal gig the the audience might be violent and unpleasant but actually there's never a nicer environment than you know yeah. everyone's moshing but when someone falls over everyone goes to pick them up more often than not and and i think that's same with you know i'm, I'm about to do the abattoir festival in aberystwyth wow. and that's such a lovely gathering of people who love horror and and i you know i don't mean friday the 13th i mean the proper stuff you know real beautiful classic stuff strange stuff uh and um and they're all such lovely people and when you get everyone together like that, and, and you know, we're all freaks and we're all, you know, old fashioned nerds. Um, and it, there's just such a level of joy in, in that experience. I, sorry, to go through to the comfort thing with uh, horror. As a child, I was always scared by Doctor Who, watching Doctor Who. But my memories of Doctor Who are sitting on the floor cross legged in my nan's house. So it's like watching these scary things on a screen while being having the warm hug. Of being in my nan's yeah, house yeah. while she's in the kitchen doing the, the best mashed potatoes in the world i think that it's that it's a comfort at the same time as it's kind of, kind of a scare so that... well there is that phrase now cozy horror where people can i think of the amicus films and the, the hammer films as it's always a weekend and it was always i'm not in school and i'm looking forward to seeing my mates tomorrow i mean mum would just my mum and dad were so liberal they didn't know or care what i was watching or reading I always, I said this in another episode, I always vividly remember half one in the morning, my mum storming downstairs and shouting, are you coming to bed or what? As I'm watching like Theatre of Blood by myself. But it was more the fact that I was still awake at half one. Yeah. And I, I just have so many 
cosy, warm memories of horror as a child. Also, those people like Vincent Price, like Peter Cushing, you know, everyone loved them. They were warm yeah. people. You know, whoever they were playing, there was a real... Uh, sadly, I never met either of them. And, you know, I know Barry Cryer told me about when he he, he worked with um, Vincent Price on Bloodbath at the House of Death, the Kenny Everett horror movie. And, uh, and he said it was, you know... Vincent Price was just charmed the whole time, and he was always the last one to go to bed. He was totally sober, but he'd been drinking all night, fine wines, and he'd be the first one up. Wow. Every line perfect. You know, and he was so, you know, he's interested in so many different things. And, and Peter Cushing, I, I just, did any of you go and look at the Peter Cushing auction that was on? No, no, sadly oh, not. That'd be amazing. Well, I deliver. I deliver. Fortunately, I was working, and I, and I went, uh, and I was, I was, I think, flying back from Cork that morning, so I couldn't bid. But there were just these, you know. The, well, I think the thing that probably went for the most that would have actually been of no interest to me were the slippers that he wore when he played Grand Moff Tarkin. But <laughs> wow. all of these scrapbooks <laughs> and all of the little um, sketches that he used to do of other people in the Tudor tea rooms when he would go to the, you know, in in. Uh, in Whitstable and all of the, there's a, I'm sure you know it. You know Stephen Volk who uh, did Ghost Watcher. Have you read yeah. his um, Whitstable story, the Peter Cushing story? Oh no, no. Oh, it's 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 a novella. He did three novellas, kind of based in a certain level of reality that goes into a fantasy, and it's and it's so beautifully written. And it's Peter Cushing shortly after his wife died. And as I'm sure you know, you know, Peter Cushing was utterly destroyed by the death of his wife. And if you've ever seen any film after, say, with Peter Cushing after 1971, if his character has a photograph of his wife, it was his real wife, Helen. They they used the real real photos of her. Um, and, uh, and it's about him being brokenhearted and having lost all meaning in his life. And then a little boy comes and says, my stepfather is a vampire. Can you help me? And I'm not going to give anything away because it is there's moments of intense sadness in it and intense beauty. And it's it's the most, you know, it's, it's so if anyone gets a chance, I'm trying to remember what the name of the press is because they brought it out as a trilogy with all three that he did. But the Peter Cushing one, Whitstable, I, I just read it in one fell swoop and it's and it really captures that, you know, the delight of that. I'd always use one of my favourite things when I was doing the uh, show I did in Edinburgh called The Satanic Rites of Robin Ince. Um, I would always tell my, my favourite Peter Cushing story is how he learnt about death where uh, his mother, if he was naughty, would sing this song uh, about going over the sea, I'm going to go over the sea, and then she'd pretend to be dead. She'd punish him by pretending to be dead. And oh, when she'd start to sing the song, Peter Cushman would go, please, mummy, please, mummy, don't die, don't die. I promise to be good. Please, mummy, don't die. And um, and then he'd be naughty again and she'd be dead in a chair. And then he said, and, and, and my brother used to come in and go, don't be so silly, Peter, you know she's not dead. Go on, kick her, shove her. But I couldn't because it was mummy. And then one day when she was being really dead i i was i was so annoyed that i just i just shoved a piece of bread covered in jam into her face and she never did it again and i just <laughs> love that story it's such a charming story of uh but he um yeah I, I, all, all of those characters you know the all of those the tops bubblegum cards that we used to have of you know grotesque images of uh, uh christopher lee there bleeding from hawthorns well, I mean, you just just before um, when I joined the little video chat, I was running a little bit behind. You were showing uh, Steve and Dave some stuff from your from your study or wherever you are at the moment, uh, Robin. Uh, we, we we were lucky enough to have a, a peer into Reese Shearsmith's attic the other the in a previous episode of Sky for Life. Have you got a load of load of stuff up there in in that room? Oh, well, that, uh, let me show you the best thing. This is my best thing. 
That wow. is the life mask of wow. people pushing. Wow. That wow. was wow. That's amazing. Uh, so they're you know full full like you can see every single line of his face. I'm still not sure which Peter Cushing. I was trying to work out. I mean, I was wondering if it was Tales from the Crypt when he was playing Grimstite because there must have been makeup required for that. I was trying to think of which one of the movies. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. I was at, at Weta, the the you know special effects place in New Zealand where they, and uh, and I was being taken around there, and it was just I felt so at home because everyone there was wearing a T-shirt of something obscure that I loved. Everyone there was in a different way, neurodiverse, and that moment where everyone's comfortable to be with everyone because you all know. And um, and I, I went into this room. They took me to this room, and it was just incredible. It was all of these life masks, not just of things they'd worked on. I think makeup people swap life masks. Oh, can you do me a copy of that one? So there, you know, there was Tor Johnson. There was David Bowie, life mask from Man Who Fell to Earth. There was Meryl Streep. There were all these things. And Christopher Lee and and the, there was this Peter Cushing. I said, I said, am I allowed to have a look at this? Yeah, take it off the wall. And I took it off the wall and I started just telling uh, them a couple of stories about Cushing. And then the next day, when we were doing our gig in Wellington, uh, the head of Weta came in with a box, not dissimilar to the kind of one that would normally hold Gwyneth Paltrow's head, and uh, <laughs> opened the box. And he said, I've got a gift for you, and I kind of guessed. And he said, and so he'd had a perfect facsimile done of the life wow. mask of Peter they have that's one of my favorite things can i ask a a real novice's question here what what is a life mask why do people have life masks mate it's basically to work out exactly how to put the makeup on so you get get an exact version of their face and that helps in terms of then being able to uh you know so so, so then you you know exactly what you're working with when you're making you know peter cushing into the you know the undead grimsdyke when you're you know working on the alien face of david bowie whatever it might be so it's always for it's it's for that for um various different special effects things normally amazing yeah andy sorry if you want to see what a life mask why they do it there's a documentary on bbc i play them called who's doctor who and they show you doing that right. for michael spice when he's going to play magnus greel you know wing oh, yeah. wing chiang because he has a really hideously distorted face but they make a life mask of him first they can they can plan out the makeup amazing so, yeah. i've never heard of it before at all that's that's great yeah. it's, it's nice more more friendly a knockabout than a death mask isn't it yes. I mean, yeah yeah it's a more positive story oh, yeah when chiang the problematic one isn't it it can it's be such yeah. a great Doctor Who episode and I don't know, a story. I love that story. Uh, it's one of my favourites. I think Louise Jameson and Tom Baker, their chemistry is the most brilliant chemistry of comedy. You know, Louise Jameson's delivery, who I think she's an amazing actor as well. I think I've, I've been lucky enough to do a couple of things with her. And you just go, there's a reason that you work as much as she does because she has real tenacity and she's also brilliant what she does. But that bit where you just go, ah, so the Oriental characters can only be played by Oriental actors if they're generally non-speaking. But the moment we get to a lead one, <laughs> then we must have an English actor. With, and that, you, and you just, it's a bit like if you've ever watched The Water Margin and then Monkey. Water Margin, yeah. as far as I know, was Burke Kwok and other Asian actors dubbing it. If you listen to Monkey, Monkey is English actors. And it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, this is not good. Well, <laughs> it ain't half up, Mum, kind of yeah. thing again. Do you know what I think? Mentioning Wang Chiang, sometimes I think growing up when I did, I did become a little bit too inured to it hmm. because even now people will pick up things on Twitter and I'll read it and go, shit, I've never even thought of that. I'm yeah. so used to 
that era. The first time I really became aware of how problematic Wang Chiang was was in Doctor Who magazine when they had a young time team of like 19, 20, 21 year olds going, this is outrageous. And I kind of went, oh shit, it is. Yeah. I'm just so used to it. I think that's the great thing as well. It gives you a sense of movement, you know, as much as so many voices in the media want to keep us dragged back in some kind of, you know, awful, you know, palace of bigotry. They, it, it's a bit like when people go on about, I was talking with someone the other day about the major in Faulty Towers. And, you know, people go, I mean, nowadays they wouldn't let you have that character. And we end up saying, well, the reason is because no one who's young knows that character. The reason the major worked was because I would say for my generation, you know, middle-aged now, 54 now, everyone in the village, in a town, wherever you lived, there was an old guy in a blazer with a military moustache who was bang- banging on and confused and probably a partial alcoholic, right? They they were reasonably <laughs> omnipresent in our life. So now they exist merely as a grotesque if you put, put them in for 20-year-olds because they don't know those characters anymore. No, absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Robin, let, let's get down to it. In this podcast, you bring with you three things that have scarred you for life. Uh, could we please get your first scar? Um, the Survivors episode involving rabies, which I know you're all big fans of. Uh, yes. That episode of Survivors was, yeah. I think Survivors was, again, we, we talked a little bit before about the terrifying, uh, um, you know, the, the opening credit sequences. And that was such a great opening credit sequence, that whole narrative of how a plague spread across the world. Um, I must have watched it. I mean, I I would have only been about seven when it came out. And I normally, I think it was on eight in the evening. I think it was on early enough that I would normally have to be in bed by the time the news came on. And that one with rabies made me so, again, in in one, no, wasn't it Satanic Rights? There was a show that I did a while ago where I deliberately wrote some material. I'd met met a, a, a woman who'd lost her her daughter. Her daughter had taken her own life. And she said, could you write some material um, about suicide? Because I think it should just be, I think it should be out there. I think it should be in, you know, so people can just talk without being in an official place, right? And it t- it's the hardest work I've ever had to do because I don't normally write routines. I scribble down ideas, I go on stage and it forms and creates. But that one, felt so important in terms of what I had to make sure that I did it right. And I, and so I spent ages writing. And then one of the memories that I had was that I used to be um, after that. And then obviously also mixed with all those ones about, you know, you know, she, she, this silly girl's been bitten by a cat. Now she's been injected in the belly button over and over again. Oh. Doesn't even cure you of rabies. They just do it because you've been an idiot. Just <laughs> plugging you with that. And, uh, oh, look at this woman. The cat show's been banned because she brought a kitten back from Paris. And um, the combination of those two things, I used to go to our local church and I'd sit in the pews and I would try and kill myself by holding my breath. I was so terrified of the idea that rabies would come over the channel. I I must have been, yeah, only eight years old or whatever. And I would sit there going. (laughs) Because the body has found a way that it doesn't allow you a get out clause that easy. Uh, That's one of the great things about biology. But, you know, that really, and I've only watched it again recently. And of course, I almost wish I hadn't. Yeah, because but but there was a point where suddenly the guy who's got rapies started in my head to look more and more like Jeffrey Belden as Cat Weasel, and that's not <laughs> make it less, less effective. But, but that one had a very very major effect on me. It was really uh, um, and it and it didn't go away for a very very long time. 
You maniac, it's rabies! Get some water. I think rabies was a big thing for me, well, for the country. I, I wrote the rabies section in our second book, and you wouldn't go near a stray dog mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And there was a lot of stray dogs in Britain when yeah. I was a teenager, when I was a kid. You would cross the road. There was, um, I talk about this at length in one of the books in the first episode of the podcast. You mentioned two of the old rabies public information films there, Robin. Do you remember Rabies Means Death? Yeah. The woman who brings the cat in through customs. Yeah. I, I've got a phobic reaction to it. I've n- I can't watch it as a 53-year-old. I've tried. It's it's the grainy footage of the guy thrashing about on the oh, bed. And the, the noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Dave yeah. pointed out, that guy was long dead before that yeah. film had hit our screens. It absolutely petrified me. I, it kind of culminated... In school, when it was, I'm going to say 14, 15, when a stray dog came into the, the playground, when the bell rang, everyone else went, kind of went to lessons. And I was cornered by what I think was a Doberman Pinscher, which was the devil dog, the XL bully of its day. So I just freak out because I'm terrified of getting bitten, getting rabies. I've got my blazer off and I'm kind of attacking it with my blazer. I'm so panicked. I've, I'm kind of using every swear word in my arsenal until it finally runs away. And I'm kind of sweating, dripping with sweat. Go into the school and go into the classroom to find out that all my mates, the entire class and the teacher, have been watching me do this through the window. <laughs> and the teacher kind of turns around and just says, you've got a bit of mouth, bit of a mouth on you, haven't you, brother? <laughs> I'm it a F-ing, blinding, C-word, this, that and the other. But it, was, it wasn't getting bitten by a dog, it was getting rabies. Mm. I was absolutely, and then to find out that there hasn't been a case in Britain since 1922. Yeah. It just isn't a thing. So was it a massive it was overreaction? Channel, was it a huge? Oh. The Channel Tunnel. It was basically, Britain joins the common market as it was then. The Channel Tunnel is born. And immediately the tabloids shit the pants and think that rabid foxes and dogs are going to wander through the tunnel and yeah. infect the whole of Britain. So that's, wow. where, that's where our rabies hysteria comes from. Insane. It's like quicksand. Yeah, quicksand. Like, quicksand was a big it? fear, wasn't it? And, yeah. Every, yeah. and I never saw quicksand in my life. Never mind a rabbit fox. <laughs> Straight off the Yellowstone. Uh, so, Robin, were you, were you allowed to, in terms of growing up, were you, were you allowed to watch? I mean, a few of our guests over over the weeks have talked about being able to have access to watch whatever they want. Steve's saying he's staying up to half one in the morning. His mum's telling them off. In terms of watching stuff, what was your access like when you were growing up? Well, of course, the thing, because we only had one black and white TV downstairs. We're not in charge of it, obviously. Then my grandmother had to come and live with us, and I had to go and sleep under some bookshelves, which I think is possibly where my bibliomania comes from. I think it was the fact that I had a... um, And, of course, I was like 10 or 11 years old, and I think it was like, when you're that age... However long my grand lived there, it was it was like fifty seven years. It felt to me of, of sleeping on a camp bed under the bookshelves, and yeah. um, and then when she left though, she uh, um, left her black and white telly. So we had a black, I had a black and white telly briefly in the room that I returned to, and the trouble was, if as you may well remember, you would very often have a central aerial in your house, so wherever that aerial yeah. plugged in, so the aerial plugged in in my mum and dad's bedroom so they could control me watching the horror double bill. So (laughs) I was always able to see the black and white horror double bill. 
but they would then pull the plug at what it must have been about 11 15 11 30 and they never told me that they knew i was secretly watching it on which was a lovely thing so they allowed me to watch you know night of the demon and uh yeah beast with five fingers and all of those and all the universal ones all the other ones um but then when it would get to uh the the color ones that was uh, there was one that i saw the one that oh no i might not say because i think it might be one of my scariest things by the way, this is so much fun to do this because you probably you you might know this about me already. I never read the second line of any email. I just uh, say yes to everything because it gives me more time. So I didn't even know this was the theme of the thing, and I had to come up with this. So it's brilliant. I'm having so much fun. <laughs> do, do you think um, do you think stuff's scarier in black and white, Robin? Would you say? Um, well, if you look at something like the Elephant Man. Because of course, that scared the life out of me. That and the Elephant yeah. Man is—I remember the day after seeing that. I think I'd have probably been thirteen, maybe fourteen by the time I saw that. Um, I didn't know whether I dreamt it or not. You know that kind of thing where a yeah. bit like a razor head. You know, he always said it was a you know dream of dark yeah. and things. There's something about and and also John Carpenter does it very well. That it's not black and white, but it's almost entirely faded color in Prince of Darkness. Uh, when you go, we are talking from that, and you have that that bit of uh, you know the aliens trying to communicate with us in our dreams, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it works really well. I think that bit of where almost all the color is removed, yeah. So, so I, I think it can be, but it requires you know it's when it's used very very well, and there's a lot of kind of you know club, but but and then again, Lynch though is one of my favorite in terms of those directors where you just think what kind of mind has he managed to access to create such wonderful things well, i remember when eraserhead was first on channel four in kind of i'm gonna say when i was kind of 16 it i can't i still can't the germans have probably got a word for it but no film has ever made me feel weird for the rest of the evening yeah yeah it, it blew my mind but i i still don't understand what the feeling was that i had until i went to bed i think i felt like i was in a dream dave yeah so about the black and white, uh, I like watching those old ITC series from the 60s, like The Saints and things like that. And you see the saint driving around, and it's basically a housing estate, but because it's black and white, it looks cool. Yeah. Um, it's just, and I just think, if that was in colour, that would look shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. But yeah. It looks black. And also, sorry, to go back to the, the black and white TV, my main memory of watching The Horrible Bills is the smell of burning dust from a black and white TV that I had in my bedroom. Oh, yeah, that's just come back to me, you saying that. Yeah. You used to, used to warm up and the burning dust would be one of my fondest yeah. memories of watching Horrible Bills. You see, the black and white thing, though, is also about the fact that, to me, everything was in black and white because we had a black and white telly. So, yeah. you know, I was shocked when I first saw, you know, I think one of the first horror movies I ever saw would probably have been Pit and the Pendulum. That was certainly within the top three. So so Vincent Price, uh, Barbara Steele, as far as I remember, you know, and, and it, was, it was a black and white movie. And then years later, I saw that incredible Technicolor, you know, because Cormor's Technicolor in that and the, and, the, and the Mask of the Red Death and all those others. And it was it was a whole new thing because it had only been in black and white because it was black and white in the Alan Frank book of horror movies and all the other horror movie books I had. Everything was black and white. Uh, well, let's get your second scar then, please. Robin, what are you going to go for for scar number two? I don't know. I've not had long enough to think about it because I didn't read the email. No, I'm going to go scar number two. <laughs> this is a really... like I think you mentioned it in, in the first Scar for Life. I think you did. There's an episode of Armchair Thriller where someone looks out of a train window and they see a man yes. and his eyes appear to have been gouged out. The Diamond Day. That, Ian McKellen. Is it? 
because I've yeah. never even returned to that one because I just oh. that must have been like eight thirty at night on ITV or something like that eight or eight thirty, and it it was that thing it, one. It was always that terrifying thing of, of someone just looking up close. You know, it's that thing when someone's looking through the window. It's but like there was an episode of Black Beauty where at one point she looks out the window, Stacey Dorning or whoever it might have been at that point, or Judy Bowker, looks out the window and there's just a strange figure standing in the yard alone. And that kind of thing means that when you'd open the curtains, you'd look down, you go, the and I, that stayed with me for years. And this was yeah. the same thing, that... That bit of someone where there's a pane of glass. Look, I don't know why. There's something about having a window between you and the horror that almost magnifies it. That's the thing, because the guy presses his face against the train window in this look yeah. of abject horror with blood dripping down. That entire clip is on YouTube. Someone's isolated, just the gouged out eye scene. <laughs> That's armchair thriller, dying day. Wait. Horrendous. It shocks me that that was on at half eight, actually. Yeah. But I, I just figured that must have been pre post watershed. But jeez, Dave. So that Dave. that whole thing is about messing with his head, isn't it? Ian McKellen. Yeah. Basically, ends up going loopy because of people are messing yeah. with his head and his perception of reality. So it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant story. I mean, I remember Jacob's Ladder being a film that kind of freaked me out, and there was there was there was a scene in Jacob's Ladder where um, there was like a weird looking demon thing that just went past on the underground. You just caught a couple of seconds of it looking through the window of the underground train, and that's kind of I guess that kind of fleeting thing is is what makes it so scary. Didn't didn't another guest pick a armchair thriller uh, episode as well? It seems to have horrified uh, other people there. It seems to be that what seems the boring to be a... nun one was it? It might have been the nun. <laughs> it might the have been. boring nun one. Yeah. I've I found it in a in a charity shop in Deal when I was staying down there, and we all went, "Oh, brilliant! This will be great because we'd remembered the scary nun." Oh my god, that story dragged. You know when you look at Summer Seventeen <laughs> yeah. TV and you go, "I'm sorry, it's got to be eight episodes," but that a bit like with Saffron Steel, that brilliant thing where the first ten minutes of every episode is a recap of the previous episode. So there's only really about twelve, and I, I do love Saffron Steel. Um, but yeah, that that uh, that death of a nun one. Uh, death in Holy Orders. Funnily enough, someone brought that up on Twitter the other day and said basically that's the thing everyone remembers because the actual story is drags on forever. Oh, yeah. It got me thinking about that. Would you... Because some Doctor Who stories are like that. Six-parters are notorious for being dragged out to stretching point. I'm trying to remember if I found them dull at the time because I didn't have a video recorder. There was no repeats. So there was I was just getting 25-minute chunks every week and i'm not sure i ever found i don't think we were slowness. born i think there was a novelty no no it, i i mean i think it's like i remember when my, my cousins were the first people anywhere near our family who got a, a video recorder and you know we did those things like we managed to i think the, we rented out the viking queen a not particularly impressive Hammer movie, which is now best known because there's a shot where you can see that one of the Roman legionnaires is wearing his wristwatch. That's about anyone remembers of it. And we watched the whole thing in reverse at normal speed backwards. It was the most exciting thing. So I think, you know, we have to remember that the pacing and just the excitement that this was the period of the day where we were watching telly. Telly was going to close down. As we know, you know, telly was closing down. It's 11.15 uh, and, uh, and and then there's the national anthem and then we all have to go to bed or we're not going to work well enough in the factory in the next day. You know, all of that stuff that was yeah. going on. So I, I think the just the excitement of the glowing screen, the telliness of telly yeah. was enough. I, I think that kind of idea that things are dragging and the pace is slow is 
is when VHS comes in, when you can binge four episodes at a time. And, and I was guilty of it myself going, God, this is this is dragging on. But when you're a kid and you get your 25-minute hit once a week, I, I was never conscious of it at all. See, now I am, this is how terrible I am. If, I watch, if I'm watching any movie on streaming, uh, I more often than not watch the first 20 minutes and going, I know where this is going and go straight to the last 10 minutes. And it means I can do like 12 movies a night. It saves me no. so much time. If it's a good movie, I won't. I don't do it with, you know, if I watch something like, like The Quiet Girl, which I watched again recently, which I love, um, you know, a really good quality horror movie, like the the, the ones, I, I love the ones that uh, Jordan Peele does. I think he's a really interesting. I, 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 th- I thought the last one was fantastic. I thought the first one was fantastic. And, uh, you know, something good, I won't. But those ones where you just go, oh, this is a hack thriller with good video art. I mean, that's the great thing. That's what I love about um, – I know one should be careful. I, I don't use Amazon for books, and I don't buy anything on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I do use it as the worst video rental shop in the world. Because <laughs> yep. they have so many useless films on it. Like yes. all of them doing that. Even, even I've noticed Netflix now has put on some pretty crappy 1970s stuff. And pop, pop yeah, the, yeah. the old kind of, you know, an occasional sex comedy or whatever. And they're just going, I'll just stick that in from 1972. Yeah. Amazon Prime feels like the the kind of the horror section in the old Video City. Yeah. Around the corner from my mum and dad's. Yeah. It's just like really shit horror films. And I love it. <laughs> like when you, you know, are any of you old enough to have been of the Video Nasties generation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Mass- that yeah. was a big thing for me. I had a network of acquaintances that would swap tapes with. They weren't my mates, but I just went to a local comic shop and would kind of swap illicit films. It was a thrill of seeing The Exorcist or, I don't know, Samurai Assassin or something. It was a big time for me. Because I just remember when I finally caught up with the real video nasties, so when most of them are just not very good films where there's then yeah. some eye damage. That was the main thing, wasn't it? And I, I mean, I find it such a. Um, there was there's a great bit of footage. You um, you must have mentioned it in your book. I'm sure you have. I know that I used it in a show I did once as well. Um, that bit where it's some horrible MP who went on to be a real you know right wing shill and then was moved up to the House of Lords, where he goes and there's plenty yeah. of evidence to actually say that video nasties are now affecting dogs. Oh, it was Graham. Was it Graham? Graham Bright? Was it something? Yeah, it's Graham Bright, Bright, Bright. Bright building. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It, it was proof that normative determinism doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, Robin. Let's get your third and final scar, then, please. This is very, very hard, right? Because one side of it would be, for instance, Brian Clemens' thriller. Because when I was about six or seven, I went to stay at Philip Irons' house, and we were allowed to stay up slightly later, and. All it was with armchair, with not armchair thriller, sorry, sorry, with Brian Clemens thriller, was there was something about the music with a fisheye lens. So why there should be anything terrifying about the slightly distorted image of a street or a doorstep, I don't know. And then I could have almost picked that, but I've watched nearly all the thrillers again. And because nearly all of them are the same story... Oh, hello, darling. It's so glad. I'm so glad to be out of the asylum and all sane again. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yes, you are. Anyway, I'm just going out. I'm probably a ghost or something. Oh, I've gone quite mad again. Yeah, then nearly what? Apart from one with Norman Eshley, who was also, I'm sure you remember, the the the, the neighbour in Georgia Mildred, wonderful actor. And he played a psychopath in one of absolute lunatic. Starts off with, it's like, like, so that was nearly there. 
Uh, any uh, the opening of Hammer House of Horror when you have the uh, the um, the werewolf episode with Diana Dawes, where any time that a child and I know Eddie Izzard has talked about this as well, all things bright, <laughs> those things. Um, and, and I was also thinking about. I know so many people have picked this, even though I've actually got a nuclear Armageddon Charles L. Harness's uh, The Rose in front of me here, uh, which I've not read yet, but it's uh, it's a legendary SF classic, so I'm sure you've all read it. And um, it's uh, and I was thinking threads. You know, threads is something that I still can't watch. I, I yeah. every time I go to watch it, it was so brilliantly and brutally made. And so iconic, you know, that image that was on the cover of the Radio Times, the, the 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 traffic warden, all of that stuff. So it's very, very. But I think I might pick um, in uh, the house that dripped blood. Chloe Franks, the child actor, Chloe Franks uh, and Christopher Lee, of course, is her father, who is trying to warn everyone that she's a terrible witch. Uh, um, there's. There's a moment where she's just standing at the top of the stairs and surprises him. And she looks so pale. And that image is also certainly a publicity version. Of that image is in if it's not in Alan Frank's horror movies book, it is in the, the Dennis Gifford one. And there's something about just a child stood almost motionless looking down at the top of a flight of stairs, which I find oddly chilling. And I don't know why there's something about the uncertainty of it all there's a certain level of of zombieish creep creepiness i suppose that comes in so i'm going to pick that well you know weirdly you should say that um do you remember the tv the tv version of wolf hall with mark rylance in it there's a bit where there's like a foreshadowing of the fact that his kids um in it die of the plague or whatever and he just catches a glimpse of them at the foot of the stairs as he's heading out the the house and the, i think you're right there is a kind of like um slow walking night terror thing about that isn't there yeah it's kind of slightly unsettling dave what do you want to say <laughs> yeah sorry uh, I've, I've got a three-year-old son and some of the things he says sometimes are bloody terrifying he'll say when i was older and used to drive you around like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> what the what the hell he, he says things like he's he's been here before and he'll say things like when i used to live in my other house with my sister and you know what are you talking about you <laughs> Have you recently watched the reincarnation movie Audrey Rose, or have you been leaving? No, 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 I'm, I'm leaving that alone. Yeah, I'm leaving yeah, that no. alone until he's grown out of it. Oh, I'll tell you what, can I, can I give you another alternative, actually? Because I'm, suddenly they're all rushing to me. Um, yeah. Have you ever watched the film The Hour of the Pig? No. no. It's such an underrated no. film. So many people haven't seen it. Uh, it was directed by the same person who also directed Shalkin the Painter. And I hope you've seen Shalkin the Painter. Oh, yeah. It's one of my, you know, when you own something, which to you is priceless, but no one else would know why. Like I've I've got a a book called The Soul of the Ape, which is by a guy called Eugene Murray, which is a, uh, um, it's, it's, it's a proper anthropological book where he went and investigated the behavior of, of, of these. In fact, it turned out it's monkeys that he invested, but he was a fascinating author and the book was never published when he was alive. And then I saw a copy on eBay, not for very much. It was a first edition, but it's not like one of those first editions. I thought it's a lovely cover in the hardback. I'm going to by a hardback copy and it arrived and I opened it and it was John Justin's copy uh John Justin who played the thief of Baghdad in the uh um 1939 movie and who plays the terrifying man the pale creature that comes 
in Schalke and the Painter. And of course, there's no money. You know, the only person I told about it was I told Mark Gatiss because I knew he'd find that interesting. But no, you know, at no point if I go, oh, this will probably go for quite a lot because this used to be owned by John Justin. Who? What do you mean who? Schalke and the Painter? What? And the thief of back one, not seen that version. I saw the night. So, do you mean Arabian Adventure with Oliver Tuffer? You know, and it's like, but that, but yeah, it's the, it's the same director. And it is The Hour of the Pig is about Colin Firth, is a Parisian lawyer who is sent to a rural town in France to uh, be the defending barrister uh, for a pig that is uh, um, accused of murder. <laughs> Nicole Williamson is in it and Ian Holm is in it. Uh and it it has that real, you know, you know, like uh, uh Jabberwock, you know, the, the Terry Gilliam film and and and, and also Monty Python the Holy Grail. You know the way the grubbiness really does feel grubby. It's it's got it does yeah. so well. And it feels and there's a moment where oh, I'm gonna have to give away the end of the film, but it doesn't really spoil the film. Right, so don't listen to anything for a minute if you don't know how it ends. So <laughs> Colin Firth and his friend leave the town, and the town is filled with terrible, terrible, odd people. And a knight suddenly returns from the Crusades with his his uh, you, know, you know whatever they're called the the, the Patsy and Montespan Mal Graf got his calling you know, his his, uh, his his assistant. They're not called assistants. And and there's been this foretelling that should the knight return, to, a, a knight come to the town, then everything would change. And he, everyone's, oh, the knight's coming, the knight's coming. And then they take off his helmet, and he's this man, very pale, looking like. And then they take off his armour, and they see that his body is covered in buboes. He has the bubonic plague, and that is actually what has come to the town. And I remember the first time of seeing the revelation of that puckered and festering skin. And I was in my 20s, brother, and it is fantastic. But it's it's a really um, – uh, the reason I suddenly wanted to use that as opposed to – I've got so many I could use for the third one. But that one was a proper little gasp moment, not a gasp of running behind the sofa, a gasp of my skin is beginning to itch and the horror of it all. So if there was a thing then, Robin, that kind of gets you with, with, with movies or, or scare moments, is there a particular thing? Is it gore? Is it is it jump scares? What what kind of gets you the most? Yeah, it's not gore. Um, sometimes it is just the horror of an idea. So I'll tell you what I love is like the end of, of Fulch's Beyond, the Beyond, they find themselves basically in hell. And hell is this vast, empty space. And yeah. the end of Sapphire and Steel. They fight again. This goes back almost. It, it's almost like I have actually created a narrative. We're almost back to where we began. But so, so you yeah, know, the end of Sapphire and Steel. There, there they are in this huge emptiness. Um, and then also in Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. When, when the hand goes into the mirror to help bring out <laughs> Satan, uh, you just see the other side of what hell is, and hell is just murk. It's somewhere with no definition. It's just like this water, this brown, murky water. And you knew that if you were in it, you would not be able to see more than three or four inches away. What a horror that would be to live there. It's, so I think those kind of images, those images yeah. of truly being alone are things that I find fascinating. Well, listen, there we have it then, your three scars. Number one, uh, the Survivors episode, Rabies. Second uh, scar, Armchair Thriller, with the guy with his eyes gorged out. Uh, And then your third scar, uh, you started with the house that dripped blood, but pivoted to the hour of the pig. 
Uh, Robin, it's been fantastic to chat to you. What have you got next coming up? You just said at the beginning of this, you're incredibly busy and, and working all the time. What's next where people can get a bit more Robin Ince in their lives? Uh, the Infinite Monkey Cage is back on Radio 4 very, very soon. And uh, I am I'm continuing just to tour around bookshops and libraries. Uh, the I've brought out a new version of I'm a Joke and So Are You, which has got loads of new material, which is a book that I really love writing, which covers lots of different things about mental health and imagination. And uh, my book, Bibliomaniac, which contains many references to Pam Book of Horrors amongst other things, is uh, um, also now out in paperback as well. Oh, well, it's been absolutely fascinating to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much, Robin Ince. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for another week. Thank you again to the brilliant Robin Ince. We'll be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. And like I said at the start, we'd love hearing from you. Do get in touch at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter for something that's terrified you when you were a kid. We want to hear those stories. And uh, the email, contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. And go and buy the books themselves. You can get them right now. Just check out Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter for the link. You've been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you for joining us. And remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week. Thank you.